welcome to another episode of APIs You Won't Hate, episode 12. We are joined by a special guest, our good friend from Austin, Texas, Hunter Skarisk. And we are talking today about API gateways, service message, and also the all-important OAS 3.1. Um, and I'm also joined by Phil, as always. Phil, how's it going? Hey, not too bad. How is uh, the tree planting life going for you today? Oh, mad. Um, did uh, about 1,500 trees on the weekend. Um, had a whole bunch of volunteers. I think I planted about 10 of them because I spent the entire time just managing the project. People running about. Some of the volunteer questions are brilliant. Someone was like, I've got four trees here. Do I put them in the same hole? I was like, no, what? Sorry I didn't cover that in the original induction. But Jesus. <laughs> that's, that's not how trees work. Yeah. No, no. Well, thanks for asking. If you have any other questions, I'm always happy to help. There's no such thing as a stupid question apart from that one. <laughs> Maybe they learned how to plant trees from like Minecraft. Like I, I don't yeah. know. <laughs> right. It would be a lot quicker if we just chuck them all in the same hole. But yeah, I don't think that's what the, what nature wants. Hunter, Hunter, how's it going? Oh, you know, it's a nice sunny 70 degree day in Austin. Uh, which is very different from two weeks ago where I was, you know, no power, frozen, cuddled up with the dog, uh, you know. So I'm, I'm enjoying the <clears throat> wild mood swings of nature uh, down here in Texas. Not as much tree planting, but based on uh, what the nature looks like around my house uh, after the, such a drastic cold snap probably going to be doing a lot of planting of many new plants to replace all the dead ones oh man and you were uh, so close yeah. on the last name so close look man i tried it's it's yeah. hard it's those damn check last names that just everyone cause... butchers my name too and i just kind of accept it <laughs> yeah same here call getting a call from the bank and having either the automated system or human try to say it is always entertaining so, I mean, the first thing we want to talk about is, because uh, I think from the last time we recorded a podcast to today, uh, the big news in API world is that OpenAPI 3.1 has dropped, and most importantly, it has full integration for JSON schema. Am I right, Phil? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's quite exciting. I mean, it's a bit of a kind of academic point at the moment because tooling hasn't really had a chance to, to catch up. Um, it's only been out for kind of two and a half weeks or something, and already people are like, where the hell is support for it? Um, uh, when OpenAPI 3 came out, there were tools that took like four years to get support. So, you know, we're not even on four weeks yet. Um, slow your roll, folks. But yeah, I, I understand the excitement. It's really cool. Like the problem of OpenAPI 3 being based roughly on an old version of JSON schema that they ignored some bits and changed some bits and added some bits was just a goddamn mess because you couldn't use any standard JSON schema tooling. Um, so loads of people had all these complicated workflows where they'd like write in JSON schema and then it would like convert it to the open API flavored JSON schema. We complained about that before in the past. I built some of those tools to help those people and it really sucked. But now that problem's basically gone away. Um, open API, the schema object is still like a custom flavor but they've only got three extra keywords that don't meaningfully affect the validation of that thing. So there's still like discriminator, which is a bit weird and, and, and whatever it's optional. Um, there's the XML keyword, which is kind of gross. And there's the example singular keyword, um, which is 
kind of deprecated and you can use examples from JSON schema. So um, yeah, basically you can you can write you can write um, JSON schema that will work with open API tooling when they support 3.1 and JSON schema tooling as is, um, which is brilliant. No more stupid conversions, no more confusion. You just write it and, and things like, because now any file that you write, you can put dollar schema in there and declare which dialect. So you can say, this is JSON schema draft four, draft seven, draft 2019.09. Or you can say it's open API 3.1 and it will like, all the tooling will understand what that means. There's no more kind of guesswork as it tries to figure out these weird differences. So, um, apart from that, they've added webhooks. Um, so you can have kind of events that the server send you instead of um, just callbacks, which are like a response to a message you just did. Um, and a few other like little handy tweaks here and there. But yeah, I think give it a couple of months, you'll start to see some of the bigger tooling um, get support for it. And then we can just go ham on, on messaging to like get everyone to upgrade and switch. We never have to think about stupid discrepancies ever again. Can't yeah, wait. I saw that we added the uh, column on openapi.tools to indicate 3.1, 3, and 2. And it's like no one's updated it to be 3.1 compliant yet, but I know like once those start turning from the red X's to the green check marks, it's going to be a pretty exciting day. Yeah. I mean, one of the reasons that some of the tools you love, like the, the end user tools um, that, that you're using right now, the reason they haven't got support for it is there's a lot of other upstream dependencies that have to get support for it first, right? There's, um, like if you're using AJV, the JSON Schema Validator, there's a major version that's come out, which is, um, it drops support for some versions of JSON Schema and then like adds support for some others and they made a bunch of other major changes. So like switching AJV is a lot of hard work. Um, and then there's a lot of other tools that just don't support OpenAPA 3.1. So tools that are built on top of those tools can make the change yet either. So um, at, at Stoplight, we're kind of helping some of the upstream dependencies switch over um, and working on things like the meta schema, right? Because this is a really confusing thing, which is like um, OpenAPI has a JSON schema file that describes what is valid OpenAPI, which is super confusing. But if you have this JSON <laughs> schema of like, here are all the valid OpenAPI keywords, you can just throw that JSON schema into a JSON schema validator and turn it into an OpenAPI validator, right? Which is pretty cool. Um, but that meta schema hasn't been completed yet. So any tools that do schema-based validation can, can work yet until that's done. So there's, there's a few of these extra steps in the process. Um, so basically OpenAPA 3.1, the markdown spec has been released, but then there's the meta, uh, the meta schema, and then there's every little dependency that has like one developer working on it part-time. And then it's the, the big tools you know and love and the mocking and the style guides and the doc systems and all that stuff will we'll get support once those other steps have been done. Yeah. Sounds like you're saying there's a lot of opportunities for developers in the API sphere to get their <clears throat> get their hands dirty on open source work if they haven't done so before, helping upgrade uh, those tools. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that is absolutely true. Um, there's there's so many people out there that are like, look, these, I know these are open source tools, but they're maintained by a company you know that has paid employees. You're like, right, and we had other stuff on our roadmap for this quarter that you know yeah. customers wanted, and if we just said to everyone, screw you you're not going to get the feature that we promised you, Mr. $500,000 client, because we want to support OpenAPI 3.1 on day one when it's released, even though no one knew when it was going to be released. That That's not how you run a business. So 
um, <laughs> if we can just drop what we're doing to do that. And there are some really cool things coming, but um, yeah, there's there's a lot of open source work to be done, and a lot of people are. I think a lot of people take for granted how much work there is to be done in the Open API and JSON Schema projects themselves. Those those committees are like you know four or five people each, and then all of the tools that 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 support them um, that that aren't necessarily coming from paid companies. So uh, yeah, get your hands dirty, send pull requests. If you see something not supporting Open API three point one, offer to help. Um, please don't just sit there and grumble um, because it's not being done for you as quick as you would yeah. like. <laughs> if you got the time, which uh, a lot of people these days, especially with being stuck at home or working from home, throw your hand in the ring, see if you can help out. It, it, it benefits you and also I'm sure the other like couple thousand people that are also just grumble, grumble. <laughs> I want the nice thing. You're muted, Matt. Man, this technology is hard. It is, you know, good to get involved with open source, you know, but it is also a big time commitment too. So if you're going to yeah. do it, make sure you're in there for the long haul, not just one quick pull request and then you dip on out. But that's cool. So check out OpenAPI 3.1, you know, if you can check out the tooling, see where you can help out. Um, but our main thing we're talking about today is API gateways, uh, service meshes, and how they all integrate with that buzzword that I hate so much, microservices. <laughs> um, I'm in microservice hell right now, and we haven't actually implemented an open or a uh, yeah an API gateway, but we are using contracts to keep our APIs um, in sync and knowing what we're requesting. But so um, API gateways, what exactly? How does that work in terms of the bigger microservice ecosystem? Um, <clears throat> so my company, excuse me, has started. We finally, through uh, an acquisition that went through last year in July, started having, we finally had the, A, the uh, resources, aka the money, because we were no longer private, we had public company money, to be able to put, dedicate more time towards this effort. But it also finally made sense in our architecture to do, uh, start doing service-oriented architecture. So we... We had already been using an API gateway, even though we only had a single API service, uh, just because Amazon's API gateway <clears throat> product gave us some extra like logging functionality and things like that for free. Plus, with the tooling that they have in place, that's admittedly a bit frustrating to use, uh, we could write our open API specs to document and define what our APIs were, and then using some of the uh, extension uh, functionality of OpenAPI, which now doesn't require the X hyphen prefix, full circle, uh, <clears throat> we that provided the information or the extra information to tell Gateway how to create these endpoints and all the mappings. Uh, so we've always had the API gateway. It just finally became like, okay, we're actually going to use this thing to its fullest potential and start having it talk to two different services behind the scenes. We've used a few other gateways because that's the recommended way to uh, set up traffic from like the web directly into a Lambda function. But uh, this is the first time we're actually 
we've got a service-oriented architecture, and we've got a gateway in front of it, and everything's so far going pretty smoothly, for the most part. Nice. Which gateway are you going with? Uh, so we're all on AWS. So AWS's API gateway is literally called API gateway. Uh, they it was one of the products they decided to not be clever <clears throat> with when they named it, uh, <laughs> which is super exciting. Unlike so, the, aren't they replacing AWS uh, gateway with HTTP API, which is which has a HTTP API for the HTTP API service, which is a gateway. Yeah. Supports HTTP API. <clears throat> yep. Yeah, there's multiple types. We're still <laughs> using an older type and not the newest like one they brought up. I honestly haven't had time to read into the full differences between the types, but what we've been using works <clears throat> great for the time being. So we've, yeah, it, I've, it was definitely something new uh there are definitely a few moments of like oh christ i hope this works <laughs> how i am expecting it to because otherwise i've uh i've got a lot of drawing boards to go back to but it ultimately became as simple as writing the updating our open api specs to add the new endpoint for our top level like api domain uh same old same old then add the like X Amazon gate Amazon API gateway vendor extension to define uh, how that route <clears throat> works, which allows us to use uh, stage variables to basically tell it how to find the actual service underlying the gateway based on environment. And then just how to, if there was any request uh transformations or response transformations we needed to perform we've never taken that a route so most of our mappings are just straight uh proxy uh, http proxies so it just sends whatever it gets straight to the underlying service sweet and so i have one api and i've heard the api gateways are good should i go and jam an api gateway in there because they're good, or how do I, what point do I want to put an API gateway in front of my stuff? I, for, I think for simplicity's sake, if you've got a, if you've got an API, like single service, straightforward, there's, it depends on the features that the API gateway provides. Uh, I mean, Gateways are ultimately the first time I heard of the terminology API gateways was reading something at a from Netflix's blog like years ago about their orchestration layer. Uh, roughly the same concept. If your if your API is straightforward, like public, there's no API keys you gotta like futz with or anything. It's more just like read only. You you really don't need a gateway. But if you're if you for one reason or another, like don't want to handle managing like API keys <clears throat> and things like that. And the gateway that you've uh, you have available to you supports handling the API key authentication stuff and all that for you. Then it might be worthwhile because then you'll typically get 
uh, some reporting and metrics of like API key usage and uh, some other things out of the box. But <clears throat> if it's a simple read only, I probably wouldn't recommend it. Yeah, if I think if something's a simple read only, then you, you'd probably be better off with something real simple, just like putting Fastly over the top of it, because then you get a lot of the benefits of, you know, you just get the cache in straight out of the box and you don't really need much else, because a lot of the time, the, the common kind of bits of functionality you hear about gateways are, you know, rate limiting and maybe pay-as-you-go credits somehow, or authentication, or all that sort of, all that sort of generic functionality. Um, but if, yeah, it's just a read-only API, then probably just slap a CDN in front of it. And that's kind of getting you the only bit you really care about. Um, yeah. Like, I know with Amazon's API gateway, whenever you're using that, you're basically uh, getting, like, CloudFront uh, caching to a degree mm -hmm. in front of the API, which helps. Obviously, you still need to define, like, your service or the gateway's, like, definition for like response transformations or the headers need to still pass the like cache headers for how long it's supposed to stay in the CDN, but otherwise, yeah. Yeah, sweet. You can I mean, also I... get away with like varnish in front of your API or right, things right, like exactly. that. Yeah, well, I guess yeah, that's what that's what Fastly's doing. In it. It's just hosting varnish for you mostly, so it's uh, a bit easier to, to not fat. Oh yeah. Um. So yeah, that. I've worked at companies before where they really wanted to hold off. They were really trying to avoid API gateway because like it's a moving thing. It, you know, right, we work was just like everything is a Rails app. Everything is always just a Rails app. And whenever you want to have shared functionality, you just make a gem and, and people install that gem and theoretically they keep it up to date, right? So uh, they're like, well, we don't need, um, you know, all of our different APIs have OAuth 2 or some of the awful, awful random hand-rolled bullshit that got us hacked a bunch of times. But generally speaking, my new stuff was always using OAuth 2. So great, install Doorkeeper in PHP land. That would be, what, Passport or something. Um, and yeah, you install this OAuth 2 gem and then great, you've all got the OAuth 2 gem. So you didn't need an API gateway because it's all the same functionality everywhere. But then some people don't update their version for a long ass time because it involves some breaking changes and they haven't got enough tests and they're scared. So then you have divergence in it, and it, it seemed like it was going to be consistent, but different stuff reacts differently in different APIs and it gets super weird. So yeah, it's one of those things of like, you don't want to jump to it straight away and it's not always necessary. You could even get away with having like maybe two or three different APIs that were just sharing some of this logic. But if, if you feel like it's, you're going to get more APIs, if you're planning on having multiple, um, then you might not want to bother doing it the gem way first. You know what I mean? Like if you know for sure that soon there's going to be more, maybe you just skip that step and go straight to, we'll have an API gateway, we'll, we'll use the generic functionality for rate limiting caching, authentication, and then when we have these other ones, we don't have to then do a migration over afterwards. Yeah, like we're, <clears throat> our APIs today are pretty much internal use. I mean, they they do get used by uh, some of our affiliates for widgets and things that we provide for them to put on their pages. We're a marketing company for helping homeowners find contractors, so we provide cost calculators and things like that. Uh, none of our APIs are really uh, sharing anything like PII related <clears throat> uh, that's public facing. The most you can get is like first name, last name, and 
the zip code where they live at. So we haven't really done a ton of authentication because it's not really been necessary. But with the acquisition and some like future product goals we have, eventually like we're really trying to make the build the a homeowner experience that kind of makes doing work on your house for home improvement uh, less awful and shit <clears throat> to go through because anyone that's either here in a homeowner or listening that's a homeowner probably knows the pain of finding contractors to get shit done. Uh, eventually, like we've we've got an experience today, but there's no like login. We've because we didn't want to put a barrier of like registering an account and all that to our flows because you know conversions equal money yada yada yada. But now we're at a point where we're like, okay, hey, like we're we want to make this a place that you keep coming back to to do projects and it'd be really helpful if you could easily get back to your uh, homeowner resource center as we're calling it and even s start seeing like your past projects instead of whatever your current project is now we're looking at okay sooner or later we need to set up a like authentication experience for our <clears throat> homeowners and when we get to those discussions, the gateways, however we wind up doing that authentication, the gateway is going to come in handy because instead of every single service having to know like how to authenticate an OAuth 2 token or whatever the fuck it is, the, we can just have the gateway do the authentication once and just pass the authenticated user identifier down to all the services, either in a query pram or a header or whatever the hell. And then all the services are just can just operate under the assumption of if I've got this data, I'm authenticated. Otherwise, if I need to blow up, I just blow up. <laughs> yeah, and that seems like they have a better um like the the authentication seems like a real benefit if you're doing microservices or service oriented architecture in multiple languages like a Go service, a Python service, PHP service, Java service, TypeScript service. Um, we're like, you know, everyone knows how to handle OAuth and JWTs and all that, but they all handle them just a little bit differently. One auth layer to handle them all makes life infinitely easier going forward. Oh yeah, I mean, I've it definitely does it. I, of course, occasionally while working on the service-oriented architecture stuff, uh, cannot help but think of that one, uh, like, service architecture meme video <clears throat> uh, where the guy is describing the, like, 7,000 services to accomplish the one thing, and it's, like, the Eye of Sauron over here and some hyperflux quantum <laughs> service there, and I'm like, okay, now that I'm starting to get into this realm, I'm starting to understand uh, a little bit of first-hand or getting some first-hand experience with this meme but it does really help like how you avoid falling into that meme trap is finding the tools that allow you to collapse stuff like that into just one place and gateways yeah. are really helpful that makes a lot of sense i mean i've seen a lot of people so i do a whole bunch of consulting and stuff on the site right so i always get people bringing me their messes to to, to try and figure out um, and it's quite Merry Christmas. Honestly. Yeah, no, I really enjoy it. Like I used to do a whole bunch of like technical problem solving in previous jobs, and 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 now I'm kind of a product designer, so it, it's a bit more theoretical. And like I can plan a nice thing, 
and then just hope the engineers implement it well, right? Um, <laughs> whereas, um, yeah, the, the consulting work is like, everything's on fire, just like just like back at WeWorks, just every day, I'm just like, here's more <laughs> fire. Like, hey, cool, figure that one out, get some money. Um, Thanks, I was so, getting cold. Yeah, exactly. Which is a good problem. So, you know, it's just good, good mental brain scale think words. Um, but uh, yeah, I've, I've seen people trying to grapple with the idea of an API gateway, right? And it's pretty cool to have this central place where you can put all sorts of logic. Um, but then, you know, I've seen a lot of people crafting foot guns with that. Because if you've got this one place that you can put all sorts of stuff, then all of a sudden everyone tries jamming everything in there. And I was just wondering if you've you know, had, had enough time playing around with API gateways to have people trying to put really stupid things in. And if so, what's the, what's the smartest non-standard thing someone's trying to put in there? And what's the really dumbest thing someone's trying to put in there? Surprisingly, we haven't had like run into that yet. And I think part of that is because we our approach to the gateways we don't really like create and configure the gateways like directly like using what i'm used to like aws for example we have to create the gateway <clears throat> either by hand or uh we've used one of aws's like solutions before and tweaked the code to get exactly what we needed and it's the cloud formation template set it up for us but whenever we're going to define a new resource like we're not adding things to our gateways directly so it's all immediately kind of controlled in that end on the resource front by hey if you're going to add something you have to write the open api specs for this endpoint and then that goes through a code review process and everything where our uh, like principal architect is always tagged on those to uh a, make sure the API designs are, you know, not awful and in line with what we are doing across the board. And B, he's also got the benefit of a uh, English degree so he can help translate developer descriptions into something that, like, <laughs> normal human beings can, like, read uh, better. <laughs> uh, yeah. So we, we kind of have a bit of a lockdown on that regard because we're all like resources have a bit of a review new resources have a review process before they are added to the gateway we mm. don't have every api running through our gateway we have some services that are not that are used throughout the company internally that don't go through the gateway but that's because we don't need them to because they're internal usage only <clears throat> so mm. uh those get a little bit those do have the tendency to get a little bit more wild west, but since it's internal use only and I, we don't have to worry about actual paying customers, we just we don't worry about it too much. There's also the kind of the benefit of uh, kind of with Amazon. Amazon's API gateway has a lot of functionalities, some of which we're not using, but it also, uh, some of its functionality has like different barriers. Like you've got to, you know, make sure all your IAM policies are set up correctly and configure a thing to CloudWatch and CloudTrail and whatever who's it's, what's it's that Amazon's named their newest service. So we've kind of had, Amazon's got a little bit of a, it's hard to cram everything in there 
through obscurity <clears throat> kind of thing. But so far, our team's been pretty good about it. Now, bring me back in like six months to a year and ask the same question. Uh, now, once we've had a lot more time to play with and shoot ourselves in the foot a few times, hopefully not, but it happens, uh, my answer might be a bit different. <clears throat> so. Okay. And so you're using um, the API gateway just for traffic coming from the outside world in. That's pretty pretty standard, right? That's that's what a lot of folks were doing. But um, because there is a whole bunch of useful functionality in there, um, I, I found it quite common that people want to start sending all of their traffic kind of out and in again, you know? Um, basically wanting to hit that API gateway, whereas before they could have done some like internal IP address stuff and, and saved a few hops around the world. Um, now people are like, oh, well, we don't want to have to figure out how to do authentication internally and externally. So they end up kind of slowing things down a little bit. And so that is pretty much like, that. yeah, that is uh, where Service Mesh popped up a little uh, a couple of years ago, right? So the idea was the same sort of thing, same sort of generic functionality can be put at the network layer. So things like timeouts and retries and, and circuit breakers and all the things that, you know, the average developer isn't particularly experienced at doing by hand in application code. All of that stuff started getting moved to this kind of generic layer that was theoretically different to the 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 traffic coming in from the outside world to like intern it was like the service meshes on the internal service to service stuff or stuff going out it's more on the requestee side right um and and i was just curious i haven't really been paying attention to them too much recently but i know that kong which was a popular api gateway created a service mesh and then um, Istio, which was a popular service mesh, created an API gateway, and now I think they're all basically the same thing. Like, what happened? What happened there? And is there a difference anymore, or is it just conceptual? Like, do you use the same thing in a different way, and now it's the other one, or are there differences? I like. I personally have always in also Tyke, another API gateway, also yeah. as a service mesh. Uh, I was confirmed. I was like, I swear I've seen them have that, but I think it, theirs comes in more with when you're doing Kubernetes mm. um, fun, which is a whole other topic. <clears throat> uh, not for this podcast. Um, I've always interpreted the two products to have different roles and responsibilities, though I can see like Kong and Tyke and others uh, potentially at least front facing to the customers kind of merging the two so it seems like they're one or maybe even just merging but like for me service mesh is more for service discovery to kind of resolve that going out to go back in uh problem we have a few api endpoints that do exactly the same like do that not because of the fact we're not using a service mesh it's actually the api talking to itself by going out and in because it kind of gives us some extra logging with how we've got dashboards and stuff set up instead of just doing the direct PHP code that powers the one endpoint, just also using it in the same place, whatever, different thing. Uh, but we're getting to the point where, uh, for example, the service that I'm working on, our main original API is now reaching out to that service and making requests. 
we've assigned since our API gateway just sits there and then talks to the load balancers that then hits the containers underneath we've got the load balancer in front of our this new service uh, it just provides like SEO type profiles about our contractors so you can actually know like who they are what they're about if they're insured did everybody give them a shitty score on BBB the people on Google actually like them <clears throat> things like that uh, the main API is making a request out to that service to fetch those profiles and then augment the data into the existing API and return it so our front-end codes not having to futz about with two different API calls to just to merge the data uh, right now that's just like hard-coded per environment to reach out to the the HTTP domains for the load balancers. We're working on service number three, technically four if you count our legacy platform <clears throat> now for a new call center experience and there'll probably be cross communication there. As we're growing more services, it will be, it'll make more sense to have a service mesh handling the discovery of where these services actually live. So instead of having to like configure per each environment, I mean, we'll probably have to configure a service mesh per environment, but whatever. And actually like set up like, okay, like HTTP colon slash blah, 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 this <clears throat> route 53 domain and have to, you know, eat the DNS lookup and everything theoretically should be slow, but we get hostname lookup issues sometimes. So there's obviously a bottleneck there. Uh, the service mesh will allow us to just go, yeah, I just need to talk to service A. Can you go tell me how to? Yeah, sure, chief. Here it is. And then we just make the communication. So Gateway kind of gives us a way to go. We offer this API and it has all these endpoints. And as far as you know, that's just one server, one giant monolith code base. But here's the secret. It's actually like 50 services behind it. And then the service mesh makes it to where instead of all 50 services having to keep track of how the fuck to talk to each other, the service mesh just comes in and goes, yeah, I got it. You just ask me, service 51, where to how to talk to the other 50 services, and we'll handle it from there. Nice. We yeah, are. It, it seems like Istio kind of handles security in a way too. Like I, we use Istio in our microservice based architecture, and so like, what we like, my team did not configure it. Another team did, but like, it's all locked down to where it's only internal DNS. You can only you have to be inside the containers to talk to it, which makes it painful if you're developing it, like in the initial stages. But like, once you deploy it to production, like you said, it's all hands off everything is kind of handled and no one can get to it unless you know the service address of that particular service um which adds an extra layer of security which is nice to have you know this day and age yeah it looks like aws's app mesh as they call it has but one of the faq is service to service authentication and they're the what it supports is actually if not as familiar with this, but mutual TLS to mm. kind of just have that <clears throat> extra security between, which is super nice. And will potentially be something that we 
will need in the future. Like our company's still in, you know, for anyone who's been through an acquisition, merging the platforms together. So you're not managing two disparate platforms, uh, integrating what makes sense, deprecating what doesn't, yada, yada. Once we're done with that work, the sky is kind of the limit for our <clears throat> engineering team. Our, we got acquired by a company that's been around for a while with a ton of Java services. Most of their backend seems to be in Java, but they've also acquired other companies that do Python, PHP, we've got .NET. Now, if it, Amazon supports it, which I'd be surprised that they didn't, we'll be able to start even going like, oh, hey, for our division of the company, we've got this gateway for the API. Let's start, they're getting into building REST APIs for the first time, because they did a lot what you were talking about, <clears throat> but in Java land, Phil, of here's this Java mm. applet library, whatever the hell it's called. Here's a jar file that gives the common functionality between everything. Now they're wanting to, they are also wanting to get the service oriented architecture as a full company. With something like App Mesh, we can even put their services to be discovered and just have this nice interconnected mesh of applications that all works. Yeah. yeah. Thumbs I mean, up, the... trademark. <laughs> everything works fine. Yeah, I mean, uh, there's there's a lot of talk about like you just add a service mesh and then everything's wonderful, right? And that can get totally blown out of proportions by yep. people that don't really fully understand what that means and it just seems like a panacea. But um, basically by, by moving, uh, network engineering is really hard. Like operating over networks is incredibly hard. What happens if that service is slower than you thought or quicker than you thought or not there at all or just all these really mad things can happen um, that can cause like cascading failures and, and God knows what. But um, basically instead, I was in a position that we were trying to teach about a hundred engineers um, who barely cared about network engineering, how to do it properly because everything was on fire all the time, right? And so people would just make a request and hope it worked and, and hope it was quick and hope to God it came back in the format they were expecting. And if all of those very unlikely and reasonable assumptions didn't pan out, then just shit was on fire. People couldn't use the bathroom. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> so things like, um, you know, you make a call and, and you don't realize that you're, you know, you just literally do HTTP.get because it's one line and that's easy. And you don't realize that the default timeout for that is 60 seconds, but whatever, it usually responds in less than a second, that's fine. And then suddenly it takes 45 seconds and all of the people coming in requesting whatever controller is doing that get request that's slow, just means that you've now completely blocked all of your web threads and that entire API is down because you didn't put timeout one or timeout five, or you didn't know how to figure out what timeout you should pick. So like things like that, um, you know, it doesn't magically make everything work, but it stops a whole bunch of fucking stupid problems from happening. Um, things like, uh, I think I talked about the um, stampeding herd Cluedo I had to play, or Clue, I think you call it, the game we have to try and figure out who done the murder. Yeah. Um, we, had, uh, we had a service that busted cash somehow, and, and just like went on a rampage trying to get all that data back as quick as it possibly could. Totally obliterated this other server. We didn't know which service was doing it. We didn't know which thing to turn off manually because we, we had no idea. And it was like Faraday, uh, the, the user agent said Faraday 091 
and we went through all the code bases. It's like that one's on Faraday 08, that one's on Faraday 012, that one's on Faraday 09, oh, oh, ah, three. No, that's not the right one. And we eventually <laughs> found the one service out of like 80 that had the exact version <coughs> number of that Ruby uh, HTTP client gem. Um, and went, oh, it's probably that one then. Like, turn the dynos down to zero. And shit like that is stuff you don't have to do if, A, every single one of your engineers who makes a call over the wire ever knows all of the things that can go wrong and tries to, like, combat them preemptively, or two, B, whatever I said the first, you get people that know about all that stuff and give them tools that support all those common use cases and let them worry about it. And the other engineers just get on with writing whatever business functionality okay. they're, they're working on, you know? You were so just doing words default bullet points. Dot, A, one, Roman numeral. <laughs> <laughs> and IV. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it, do, it basically, it does solve a shitload of problems. It's not magic. It just, it's just arming people who know about that sort of thing with tools that can take care of that sort of thing. But you do need to have someone that understands how to use it, right? It's, it would be like saying, you know, databases solve the problem and not having anyone that understands database admin. You need, yeah. you need that person. <laughs> it's, it's the, it's the, like, all the tooling that is around today, especially, like, from when I've started doing API developments, even programming in general, the tools that we have today are, like, phenomenal. Like, being, with the tools available, being a developer and actually being able to go, hey, I want to make this product to doing it has just gotten so, like, straightforward. It's incredible. But it has some of its pitfalls. Like, I <clears throat> I would even say, like, I'm not exactly a master of even considering every single thing of, like, over-the-wire communications. I took my networking class, but that was last in, like, high school when I was <laughs> doing that stuff. <clears throat> uh my networking class in college was more on like security and the layer breakdown of where, so I've got that, but not every developer has that knowledge just handy or even remembers it because why would they? They're just, mm. they don't have to worry about it now. It's just kind of out of sight, out of mind. But once you start getting the service oriented architecture, huh, uh oh, gotta start thinking of the network layer again. Or as that one yeah. joke was, like service-oriented architecture made a left join in MySQL now over <laughs> HTTP. <laughs> it's really yeah, the same thing. It's still network traffic, just different protocols, different layers. Right. And, and it's not even diminishing. I guess my point is less. It, it's not that people don't know enough and they should know more. It's more that because network interactions are so inherently complicated and HTTP is fantastic and, have, and take, takes care of a lot of really clever things for you if you either do a whole shitload of work yourself or you implement all the right middlewares, right? Like, you, you know all about HTTP middlewares yep. and, and server-side and client-side middlewares. And if you enable lots of things, then it can kind of do it for you as well. So like if you enable uh, retry logic, like automatic retries, then should, you know, um, should a post retry automatically well probably not because it might you might end up sending two payments um should a should a get retry automatically well yeah that's pretty safe as i didn't phone um if you get this error should you try again um and is it likely to be paired with a retry after or not like um you know which status codes and which combinations of status codes and, and methods should do what and all of that logic is really complicated if you look at the tools that like the the retry middleware tools you look at that source code fucking hell 
you know, like, you're glad someone else did that. And it's the yeah. same kind of thing. It's like um, service meshes kind of enable all of that functionality in a consistent way because the retry middlewares for two different languages and two different clients are different and are missing things. And HTTP as a specification is consistently evolving, which people don't seem to realize. They're just like, it's 20 years old. Ah, I've <clears throat> come out all the time. So yeah, yeah, you like, basically will get like an inconsistent experience. <laughs> yeah, we got prompt details, HRC, which I really hope will get out of draft one day. Yeah. We've got HTTP 3 is now a thing, and I think we're still trying to get HTTP 2 support. I thought I saw HTTP 3 or whatever Google's fancy fucking name for it was. Yeah. Was now we need to get there. all that on standards.rest, actually, because they, uh, they came out with a search HTTP method as well, right, which kind of solves the problem of... Yeah, you can kind of do it with a get and query variables, but it gets a bit complicated. So they yeah, just make like get... an actual dedicated search thing. Oh yeah, I mean yeah. like Elasticsearch is the best example of like, all right, I'm gonna do a search with a git, but there's a JSON body, which is technically not <laughs> okay by the RFC, but the server will allow it, and yeah. then the application can do shit. It's like, oh, okay, that's totally makes sense. <laughs> uh. Yeah, and with the service mesh and some other I, other tools, you start to get some... Uh, <clears throat> it helps, too, with, like, the story you were just telling of, like, trying to track down, like, which of the fucking 80 services had the right version of Faraday. User agents definitely help with tracking down, like, if a service is making a call. Like, I th personally believe having user agents that at least sh show, like, name of the service the library doing it, Guzzle, its version, and then uh, maybe some other details helps. But if you have some other tooling in place, uh, once again, I have to lean on what I'm familiar with. We're not using this at the moment, but it's starting to make more sense. Uh, something called AWS X-Ray. It basically starts to mm. allow you to analyze it. I mean, fuck, it's tagline. Analyze and debug production distributed applications. For all intents and purposes, it's designed with service-oriented architecture in mind, with service meshes and all that, because it allows you to actually track the request from hitting your gateway or whatever your orchestration layer is, and then wherever it scatters off to throughout the <clears throat> service mesh. So then you can start to track down, like, hey, it seemed to, like, it didn't behave correctly. Instead of playing it which find the fucking gym spec file with the right tagged version, you can actually, you can play the game of, okay, I know this is the like ID that was assigned by this X-ray service. Where did it go? And where did it fall apart? Oh, okay. Right there. Cool. Fix it. Boom. Can you move on to the next fire? You can go to the bathroom then. <laughs> Always important. For people that don't know what WeWork is, they're going to be very confused about the whole thing. Shitty co-working space, um, just for context. <laughs> <laughs> Potentially not Every time not you bring it up, rough. I think about that book, the uh, the Billion Dollar Loser, and they like they talk about specifically like knowing about each member's preferences through uh, the apps that they had that never actually ever worked, and it's really fucking funny to hear you talk about them in this context. Yeah. It's it's yeah. funny from the Austin area because my <clears throat> foray after college and my career was through a co-working space by the name of Capital Factory. The startup I joined was like employee number two or three at was using the space for work and was getting some funding from 
their incubator program. I was like, oh, this is like this was kind of cool. Like, I mean, it was fun. You had a bunch of other developers and tech people and the capital like factory, and I'm sure we worked in this too for their spaces would like do events and throw different things, and there'd always be booze available. <clears throat> and who doesn't like oh, booze? Yeah. Why not? Uh, yeah. Like, yeah, exactly. There was, like, beer and wine on top at Capital Factory. Or maybe not wine, but for sure beers and ciders and uh, great time. I don't know if as much work as possible was getting done. The startup failed, not because of that, for other reasons. But it was funny seeing WeWork come in and then saw you, you were working there. I was like, oh, cool. Uh, and then later, like, oh, well, I'm kind of glad I never wound up in a WeWork space now. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, after after I got screwed over in a bunch of different ways there, I, I just started like taking the piss a little bit. It'd be great on, you know, it's a lunchtime and the red wine is next to the like blackberry kombucha or whatever it was. So you just pretend that you're having one of those. Um, and uh, yeah, like when you're, when you're leaving and about to head home and you've got your one liter cycling bottle, you just top up with wine. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I'm going to cycle home and see how much of this free wine I can drink on the way. I, I also, like, <laughs> I, like, it's completely off top of it, but I just love, like, no wonder, like, the tech field can kind of get, like, shit off, like, oh, you bunch of, like, fucking elitists or whatever. Like, of course we're getting that shit. We've got places where you can either go, I want wine or blackberry kombucha on tap. <laughs> yeah. Like, what the fuck? <laughs> Yeah, I'm I'm pretty um, pretty upset with myself for saying that sentence out loud. Just purely, I don't care that people know I'm stealing wine. Just the fact that oh, you had kombucha on tap and you were complaining about it. Yeah. Now don't get me wrong. Privileged one of my twat. Yeah. One of my uh, co-managers at uh, where I currently work, which I don't know why I'm beating around the bush. I like working there. Uh, Quinn Street or Modernized Home Services, a division of Quinn Street. Uh, He's our front-end manager. He makes kombucha at home. I'm sure if he listens to this and finds out there's a place that you could get kombucha on tap, he'd probably be like, why the hell do we not have kombucha on tap in our office? Yeah. Can we go. have kombucha on tap? <laughs> well, speaking of jobs we do and don't like, um, I have just got a little pop-up alert saying that I've got to join the sales meeting, um, and I don't, I don't know what that's about. I'm not usually in sales meetings, so I should probably go find out. So... <laughs> Well, I think that's a good point to uh, kind of bring it on home. Uh, Phil, go join your sales meeting. Hunter, it's great talking to you. Appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. Um, and we will catch you next time. Thanks, y'all. Yeah, I can't wait to be around. Good to see y'all. It's been a while. Yeah, thanks for the chat, Hunter. Have a good one. Stay Have warm. Good one. Yes. <laughs>